Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing, and uh, in case you wondered why I, a man, am solo hosting Westminster on International Women's Day, in my defence, Caroline Hepker, my co-presenter, is off taking part in Women's Voices 2021, hosted by Media Trust in celebration of International Women's Day. And she is among many parents in England rejoicing today, of course, because pupils are returning to schools and colleges after months of remote learning. Now, it marks the start of the first stage of the easing of virus restrictions. Earlier, I spoke to the Education Minister, Gillian Keegan, who told me schools are ready for the extra testing and other measures needed to reopen. And there's no doubt that there's a logistical challenge that every school and college across the country is uh, engaging in over this week. But, you know, we have actually had all of our schools open for vulnerable uh, children and for key workers children. So they have already set testing up and they've done more than four million tests already. Um, so I definitely think they're up for it. They've been up to every challenge so far. And, you know, everybody's absolutely desperate and excited to get everybody back in school and college. Gillian also defended the government's recommendation to give most NHS staff in England a 1% pay rise, despite warnings that that undervalued nurses and they would quit. There's no doubt they've done an absolutely unbelievable, remarkable job. And, you know, the whole country is very grateful to them. Um, but, you know, we also do have to, as a government, look at the backdrop. And, you know, the backdrop is we've got 700,000 people who've lost their jobs who are obviously very worried about uh, you know whether they can get another job in this economic climate we've lost 10% of GDP we all know that that's massive and of course we're borrowing more than ever in peacetime so the reality is you know 1% whilst it doesn't sound a lot it's a lot more than the rest of the public sector it's a lot and the private sector and that was Gillian Keegan, the Education Minister. But Labour says the proposal goes against the government's own promise made last year to give NHS workers a 2.1% pay rise. So while the reopening of schools may be welcome news to many women, overwhelmed by the dual pressures of taking care of children and their career, the NHS pay issue disproportionately also affects women and all of that on International Women's Day. Labour says three quarters of NHS staff affected by the government's controversial pay offer are female. Adds to data showing women were worse hit by the pandemic than men when it came to job losses and overall income. Let's talk about all this with Absana Begum, who's Labour MP for Poplar and Limehouse and chair of the all-party parliamentary group on domestic abuse. Absana, thank you for being with us. Welcome to the programme. First of all, let's pick up on the return to school today across much of England. Is it the right move? I mean, I think there have been significant concerns throughout this period of where the government has been discussing and uh, you know, talking about the schools reopening, you know, it is absolutely understandable that many parents, including many women, um, who have been juggling a huge amount of unpaid care throughout the pandemic are desperate to see children back in school. And, and this year of 
uh, you know, stop and start has definitely not been good for children's mental health or anybody else's mental health for that matter. But what has not been clear, especially in the last two months, is that uh, the rates of transmission are low enough for it to be safe for children to be back at school. And purely from that perspective, it does feel like it's a wrong move. And, and certainly I have to say, even in my constituency, some of the things that have come up include her teachers talking about how they're going to actually deliver so many of the uh, guidances and, and uh, procedures that the government has stipulated. You know, some things around space, some things around, you know, the undertaking of testing uh, for pupils twice a week. These are really hard to actually establish and deliver and implement um, on a practical basis. So would you say there are schools in your constituency that are not ready for this? I think they are and they've done, you know, they've gone above and beyond to really make sure that they're able to do so. But I think, you know, let's 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 be honest here. I think there's been an impact on school budgets. They have stretched their budgets beyond what the government is able to offer to make sure that they can meet the government's requirements for this opening today. I really wish them well, but I know they are under significant pressure and there will be, uh, you know, very many, uh, you know, sticking points and, and very many uh, moments where things will not work under under this new system. So you would have preferred them to wait a little bit longer, perhaps till after Easter before going back? Leading up to Easter, there should have been maybe a, an embracing of a, of a forest-based opening. And I think certainly that would have uh, meant that whilst the uh, transmission rate is lowered, uh, that then schools can also adjust to uh, bringing children back into back, back into school. And, and let's be honest here as well, I think we've got to understand that some of our children are extremely traumatised, do need the support from schools, from their local councils, from, from every support mechanism there is available. Uh, but to uh, put all the responsibility on school leaders uh, to do all of this work in a very short period of time also has an impact on the way in which uh, these uh, procedures can be uh, implemented safely. So I do think a phased reopening would have been helpful uh, to manage the return um, of, of pupils at school and would have actually also meant that as we got off the peak of the second wave, that we weren't also rushing back into uh, driving that R rate up. And I think there is a risk that the R rate goes up again. I don't know if that will mean definitely a third wave. I certainly, I'm sure, like everybody else, hopes there isn't. But I do think there is a risk of the infection rate increasing as a result of children being back in school in the manner that it has been done by the government. Absana, let me take tackle you on the other issue. I think that, that that's very key in government policy, or, or to keep a lot of people, of course, and particularly on International Women's Day as well. Given the number of women involved in the healthcare system, the NHS pay recommendation. A lot of attack on that from Labour. Uh, the government's saying in their defence that there is a freeze on other public sector pay, so it's it's an improvement for the NHS in comparison. And at the same time, with the public finances being as they are it would be a very, very long haul to actually pay more than 1% or recommend more than 1%. What's your take on it? I think it's. Re- I, mean, I think the government are really out of touch with the public and, and, and you know, really out of touch of, about how this really looks, how bad this looks, that the government cannot even you know, manage to commit themselves to this. It's one thing to say that it will take much longer to even you know, um, go over the 1% recommendation, uh, but to actually commit to that, in a landscape where we've seen so much of uh, the government's decisions being riddled by scandals, you know, and billions and billions of pounds being wasted on contracts and a privatised test and trace system, I think we've got to look at this 
the bigger picture here. And I think if we're saying we really can't give our nurses, you know, and, and, and we do know that our nurses' workforce is disproportionately uh, representative of women, but we can't actually give an increase to this particular group of people. And I think we've got to actually look at, look at this. And, you know, um, but- there are a lot of negotiations that are taking place, but this, this commitment is something that can be worked on Whatever happens in the next one or two years, it might not all be able to happen in the next one or two years. But that commitment and the fact that the government are so reluctant to commit to it at a time when they've been riddled by scandal is, is quite telling, I think. But what they're also riddled is by difficulties in making the public uh, finances work. I mean, if you, you wouldn't presumably be sympathetic to something that the nurses leaders talk about 12.5% increase. I mean, that's totally unsustainable in the current circumstance, isn't it? Well, I think, I think what we need to look at is the fact is that you know, we, we keep hearing this fact that there isn't money and, and we heard this before the pandemic and certainly, of course, nobody's denying the fact that, you know, there have been significant amounts of support that have been provided because we are in a pandemic. But, I, you know, I do think uh, the government is not planning a pay rise. That, that seems pretty clear. Um, and, uh, you know, budgeting for a 2.1 uh, pay rise is what nurses were promised um, last year. Um, and, and that didn't necessarily come through either. So these are previous commitments. The government are sort of rolling back on commitments that they, they had made and they had pledged well before uh, the pandemic. I appreciate that the uh, challenging economic uh, situation means uh, different proposals need to come forward. Uh, but I do think um, that the focus is not necessarily in terms of really who should be recognised and who should be uh, rewarded. If there is one workforce that needs to be really um, supported as we recover from the pandemic, it is the nurses' workforce. And we are looking at challenges, not just economic challenges, but health challenges that are going to be you know, estimated looking at lasting at least five years in terms of mental health, in terms of physical health, of people who have been impacted um, in terms yeah. of their health in the pandemic. And I uh, think that, that really should put things into perspective in terms of where the government's economic priorities should lie. Uh, Absana, if I may, I, you are, of course, the chair of the uh, All-Pali party parliamentary group on domestic abuse and on international women's day domestic abuse is something we should talk about um it's a key concern in the lockdown at least because violence against women is clearly on the way up as a result is it being taken seriously by the authorities the government the police there have been a number of announcements throughout the pandemic uh, about uh, funding services and really providing uh, spaces for women to escape to um, and receive support from uh as a result of uh, the lockdown impacting on on women in particular um, in terms of domestic abuse. Now, most recently, the government announced a further £19 million of additional funding. That's uh, further to uh, £124 million, I believe, that was announced uh, a few months ago in the spending review. But that just didn't fall short of about £200 million that is needed to really meet the minimum of what the sector requires to support victims, not just in the pandemic, but domestic violence uh, victims overall. And, you know, without that level of support um, being committed, we are, we are in a situation where specialist services, and particularly services that are led by uh, communities that really understand the uh, experiences of abuse faced by yeah. uh, marginalised communities, is, is not there. Yeah. Um, and I do think that whilst we are seeing the domestic abuse bill being progressed, I think one of the big things that are really missing from there are two things. One is funding, which is so desperately needed as a long-term measure, and two, uh, the support for uh, migrant and and ethnic minority women and other uh, minority groups as well.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. Now, we begin with the case of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. Boris Johnson said her continued confinement in Iran is totally unacceptable. The Prime Minister's called for the British-Iranian charity worker's permanent release after her ankle tag was removed at the end of her five-year sentence, but she can't yet leave Iran as she's been ordered to attend court next Sunday. The Labour MP, Tulip Siddiqui, who's campaigned on her behalf, says the news is bittersweet. She was told, you can have your ankle tag removed. She was very relieved. She was celebrating. And then she had an announcement, you have to be back in court next Sunday. My main worry is that it may be, yet again, fake charges, which gives her, let's say, another five years in prison. And that's what I'm worried about. Tulip Sadiq there. Well, turning to the UK vaccination programme, which is being expanded today, around 1.7 million people between the ages of 56 and 59 are now being invited to book an appointment. The government plans to offer a first dose to everyone over 50 by the middle of April before extending the offer to all adults by the end of July. And one of the main creators of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine has been appointed to the G7's Gender Equality Council. Professor Sarah Gilbert will help make recommendations on women's empowerment to the group, which represents the world's most advanced economies. The UK is hosting this year's summit of G7 nations in Cornwall this June. Now, children are back at school in England. But the pandemic's impact on women, of course, goes beyond the tribulations of homeschooling. The charity Pregnant Then Screwed works to end the so-called motherhood penalty, campaigning on issues as diverse as the potentially discriminatory impacts of the self-employment grant scheme to the rollback in maternal employment during COVID-19. Well, today on International Women's Day, we're joined by Jolie Brealy, the charity's founder and chief executive officer. Jolie, welcome to the programme and thanks so much for being with us. Um... Is the motherhood penalty even more obvious during the pandemic, do you think? I'm afraid it is more obvious, yeah. It's really shone a magnifying glass on the inequalities that mothers face. And that's because, of course, we haven't got these sticking plasters, which are childcare, children at school, the availability of flexible working. These are all things that allow mothers to be able to work and uh, care for their children. But without them, everything sort of falls apart. And we've seen that that's had a really negative impact on the mental health of mothers, but also it's had a negative impact on their careers. So we're seeing mothers really fall out of the work fa- workforce at a rapid rate, and we're also seeing a deterioration in their income. Now, I mean, we had a startling statistic uh, on Bloomberg uh, this morning. The World Bank chief economist, Carmen Reinhardt, saying there's still almost 40 countries in the world where people, where women can be fired from their jobs simply for getting pregnant. That obviously would mm-hmm. be illegal here. But, but there is still discrimination out there, isn't there? Yeah, there really is. We know, I mean, this is not a new problem. Before the pandemic, we know that one in nine women were forced out of their jobs either for getting pregnant or for taking maternity leave and that 77% of working mums encountered some form of discrimination in the workplace and that was a report commissioned by the government in 2016 and it showed that actually in the 10 years 
since uh, so from 2006 to 2016, those figures had almost doubled. So the problem was actually already getting much worse. And obviously, during the pandemic, it's got even worse again. And as redundancies have been made, pregnant women are the first in line, as are women that are on maternity leave, because they're sort of easy to get rid of. You know, they, they're seen as a burden, they're out of sight, out of mind. So um, they're the first to go. What's really troubling is that actually the government did have five years to rectify this situation. There were various recommendations put forward um, in the report from the Equality and Human Rights Commission from the Women and Equality Select Committee that would have dealt with some of these issues, but not a single one of those recommendations was implemented by the government. And Maria Miller has been campaigning really hard on this. She has brought a bill to Parliament that wants to see enhanced redundancy protections for pregnant women and women returning from maternity leave. But sadly, ministers have not adopted that bill as their own. So again, women are being left high and dry. So what's necessary, you're saying, is, I mean, it, well, I suppose people could say, well, it, you just make it illegal to get rid of people where it can be shown that pregnancy or, or having children is the cause or a major cause of, of, of the reason for putting people in redundancy. But does it need to be stronger than that? Does it need to be something much more solid to, to force employers not to do that? You're absolutely right that it is illegal, and that's often the response that we get. But this is illegal. How can it still happen? Um, the problems are, it's quite nuanced. So um, it is, of course, illegal to make somebody redundant purely because they are pregnant, but it's very difficult to prove that you've been made redundant because you are pregnant. So the bill that Maria Miller has brought forward would mean you can only make somebody redundant when they are pregnant in sort of extreme circumstances. So if the business is going bust for example, and the same for when they return from maternity leave. You actually only have enhanced protection from, redund from redundancy when you're on maternity leave. And enhanced protection simply means that if you are made redundant, you must be offered another job, if another job exists above anybody else that is being made redundant. So we do know that redundancy rates are very high amongst pregnant women, those on maternity leave and those that return. So we firstly would like to see Maria Miller's bill implemented, but we also want to see increased access to justice. Fewer than 1% of women who face this type of discrimination even raise a tribunal claim because it is so difficult to do. You have only three months left one day to raise the tribunal claim. And of course, if you're on maternity leave, it's I mean, it's very hard to even make a cup of tea every day, let alone mastermind a tribunal. So we need much longer timescales for women to be able to access justice. But we also need more financial support. It costs around £8,000 to take an employer to tribunal if you get legal support. There's no legal aid for these sorts of cases anymore. And of course, women just don't, very few women have that sort of money. So it means that justice is really only available for the elite. I suppose the government might say, well, hang on, this is not, you know, that, that, that may be a good law to bring in, but this isn't the time to put more red tape on employers when uh, many of them are struggling even to keep the business going at all. But it's, it's all about priorities, isn't it? I mean, it's all about if we want to rebuild our economy, there was a, a report out by PricewaterhouseCooper last week that said if we increase female employment by 840,000 women, it will 
improve our economy by 46 billion pounds. I mean, these are big figures. We, we will only rebuild our economy if we make our economy work for women. And in order to do that, we need to say to employers that it is not okay to push women out when they are pregnant or when they've just had children because otherwise we're making the workplace not work for women. What about the suggestion that now that there are, according to the latest figures, 30% of top jobs in British business are occupied by women, that that's going to start changing attitudes, that women, by their nature, are far less likely to discriminate in this kind of way to other women? I mean, it is positive, and we definitely want to see more women in senior positions, and we do know that the more women there are in government, the more women there are in senior positions, that that does have an impact on equality, absolutely. Of course, case, I was pushed out of my job when I was four months pregnant, and it was another woman that did it to me. And we get stories all the time from women who experience discrimination at the hands of other women. So it's not a panacea for the problem, but absolutely imperative that we do increase the numbers of women at those senior levels and start to create a more equal playing field, definitely. That, that's very interesting that it isn't a purely gender-based thing in that sense, because I think a lot of people would assume that it was, that women surely would have a more sympathetic attitude to other women caught in a similar position. Is that definitely across the board, that, that, you, that you, you don't get the kind of change you might expect, perhaps, when women are filling the top positions? Yeah, I mean, sadly it is because, I mean, we do hear this quite commonly that actually, I mean, many women feel they have to choose between having children or having a career because the workplace doesn't work for mothers. And so they make that sacrifice and then they expect other women to make a similar sacrifice. That seems to be quite a common thread. Um, And of course, that's very sad. You know, it's, it's a shame that women aren't pulling each other up. Uh, rather than discriminating. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's all part of the patriarchy, isn't it? It's all part of us uh, working within a man's world and trying to do the best that we can. And sometimes women, sadly, behave in a way that they feel um, fulfills the patriarchy. And um, that means discriminating against other women, bullying other women, harassing other women. So it absolutely isn't always men. I couldn't give you any statistics on this, but I know anecdotally that women can be terrible for this. Jenny, really what your campaign for is is a culture change, isn't it? I mean, it's a change of attitude that should permeate our culture in terms of how we look at people who are having children. Absolutely. And it's about changing those deeply entrenched gender stereotypes that really exist about different roles. We saw in that um, the advert put out by the government, the COVID-19 advert, women doing all of the housework and a man lying on a sofa. And that just shows that those deeply entrenched gender stereotypes, they'll really do exist. But we're only going to change those if we start to change legislation. Legislation has got to lead the way here. They're not going to change. These gender stereotypes are not just going to magically change by themselves. So we really want to see the government leading the way. And it's not just about enhancing the law. It's about dealing with those bigger issues around childcare, around paternity leave, around flexible working. We need radical changes and the government needs to lead the way on this. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.